studying, my mind went to my twin brother, Roger. Roger's not a believer. He's a great guy. I love him, and we can talk and interact. But over the years, at times, he would, in front of his family, try to press some buttons and try to get something from me. He would say, Ralph, do you really believe that Jesus Christ dealt on the cross in faith in him to pay for your sins? And he'd look around at his family and any kind of grin, and he would kind of lean forward and say, do you really believe that? Roger's reaction to the gospel was more honest maybe than some non-believers. I think sometimes our close family members, our good friends who aren't believers, sometimes they're not willing to say what Roger did. I think Roger was comfortable in telling me what he thought about my faith. He wasn't ugly. He smiled the whole time. I guess if I had to use a word to describe him in that, it was maybe a little condescending, a little smirk. I remember thinking as a new believer, and then later on over the years, how could this be? How could my twin brother, we slept in the same bed, we went to the same school, we lived in the same house, how could we have such different views on such an important topic? Now I realize that Roger was a typical non-believer who questioned the validity of the cross. You see, non-believers who do not have the Spirit of God cannot understand God's Word. Today as we look at 1 Corinthians, just a quick review, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Paul confronts the problem of division within the church there at Corinth, and he implies that pride was the root issue for the division. The individuals there, if you remember, were coming behind one teacher or one preacher, and, and they were prideful in who they were following. Chapter 4, verse 6 says that they became proud and arrogant over one at the expense of the other. As we look around the world, the world would never value the gospel, or to be honest with you, those of us who believe the gospel, because it's contradictory to all that they value. The Jews back then were impressed with power. They wanted signs. And definitely, a crucified Christ was not a sign of power. And the Greeks were impressed with intellectualism. And of course, to them, it was foolishness to believe that faith in a crucified Christ could save anyone from his sins. And basically, Paul was saying that to the non-believer, your message, Christians, the gospel is foolish. And then in verses 26 through 31, Paul urges the Christians, he says, look around you. Look around. There's not many of the upper crust of society within the body of Christ. Of course, that's a generality. I've been in churches and a member of a church or two in Birmingham, 
that were very much upper middle class and upper class. But in general, that's the case. Paul was saying here to the Corinthians, you're foolish, according to the world. The world regards God's wisdom as foolish because it cannot comprehend or understand or accept the truth of God's Word. So therefore, Christians who hold to Scripture are fools. We see Paul's conduct when he first came to the Corinthians. If you will, look with me again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Since Paul's approach to preaching was counter to the culture, he wasn't admired. As a matter of fact, most considered him a fool for going against the culture. The Corinthians, in a sense, maybe if you can think of teenagers sometimes in their views of mom and dad, Paul wasn't so wise. He was maybe a little simple-minded, unsophisticated. He lacked the charm and the charisma that these other pastors and preachers had, so his spiritual children were not very proud of him. They had begun to listen to others who had a higher level of approval by the world and admiration by their peers. But Paul seeks here to correct their wrong thinking by reminding them that he was the same Paul who came to them originally, they were beginning preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was through his simplistic, if you will, message and methods that they came to faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't use eloquent words. He didn't use rhetorical flair to draw attention to himself. He came to them proclaiming Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. Paul came with a simple, straightforward method which made the gospel primary, not himself. In verse 3, Paul turns his attention from his message and his method to his mindset. And, and I think if the false teachers in those days had lived today, they would probably have worn nice, expensive clothes and suits. Um, they would have had a, maybe a facelift. Uh, maybe they'd been very self-assured in who they were. They would probably radiate confidence and composure. This wasn't Paul. You see, Paul worked as a blue-collar worker. He made tents with Aquila. You see, his mindset when he came was one of weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul came to Corinth with a clear sense of his limitations, knowing that it's only through God's intervention 
in our lives that we're saved. Remember, it's God who initiates. It's God who saves. It's God who sanctifies. And Paul, after being beaten over and over in other cities, came knowing that he faced opposition. But the Lord encouraged him with words of assurance in Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. The Lord says, Don't be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I don't know about you, but I always, I've always thought of Paul as this kind of a pit bull, maybe a little bit stubborn in a good sense, obstinate sometimes in the midst of difficulties. But we see here that this sometimes obstinate, stubborn in doing God's will, this Paul was a guy with fears. This is the Lord's assurance that kept him going. Paul speaks of himself as a humble man, a man who with no confidence in his own abilities and his own methods, but whose trust was in God and God alone. He faced this church this church which was filled with people of pride, pride in who they followed, men with words of wisdom and rhetorical skills who had the admiration and respect of non-believers. Paul proclaims Jesus Christ knowing that apart from God, nothing will happen. Paul's actions in Corinth were purposeful, they weren't accidental. They weren't haphazard. It's not that Paul was ignorant or uneducated. As a matter of fact, he was well-trained. But Paul was determined to limit his knowledge to those truths that would save men from their sins. And even though many would have been impressed with his expertise in many areas, Paul was determined to not speak of those things. But he came to the Corinthians in much fear, trembling, weakness, so that God's power might be seen through him. Paul's rhetorical skills, if Paul's skills were the dominant thing in his preaching, Paul's wisdom would have been displayed. But when Paul preached a message that people thought was foolish, people were saved. They had to realize that it wasn't Paul's wisdom, but it was God's power working in them. Paul didn't want people to be his followers. He wanted in life to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would trust Christ for salvation and become Christ followers. Men were converted because of his wisdom, because of his methods. Then someone else might come along more intelligent, more skillful, could lead them astray. Paul's desire was that men would place their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. In verses 6 through 9, Paul compares God's wisdom to the world's wisdom. Beginning in verse 6, yet many, yeah, I'm sorry, yet among the mature, we do 
impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In verse 6, Paul changes his emphasis. Up to this point, he had been conceding that the gospel was weak and foolish and that as believers that they were foolish. But here, he changes in saying that's according to the world. Now he clarifies. He says that the gospel is foolish to non-believers, but not to believers. He insists that he and the apostles speak wisdom. And this wisdom is not for all, though. He names two groups who will not be able to understand or where the wisdom is withheld. And the first group are those who are immature. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Reminding me of the passage that talks about that not ready for the meat, you have to have milk. And these people were like infants who needed milk and not solid food. You see, the problem wasn't with Paul. The problem was with the Corinthians. So this first group who could not attain this wisdom were, were um, immature believers. The second group is non-believers. Paul says that the wisdom of the apostles preaches not of this age. And so the rulers of this age were not able to comprehend it. Even the wisest and most powerful men back then or today, wise though they may be, cannot understand grasp the gospel if they don't know Christ is Savior. This was very evident at the cross of Calvary when the rulers rejected Christ. Paul goes on and he distinguishes between God's wisdom and the wisdom of the world. He describes God's wisdom as hidden and secret. He's not referring to some kind of mystical type of wisdom that comes through certain kind of disciplines. And though the truth was kept secret for generations, God has now revealed to him or to them wisdom through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the secret still, in a sense, to non-believers who don't have the Holy Spirit. He also describes God's wisdom as that which God decreed before the ages. He's simply saying that the eternity past, the eternity past, that God the Father had decided that Jesus Christ and Him crucified would be the way to salvation. He planned to bring his saints along with him to share his glory. The wisdom of God is eternal, but the world's wisdom is temporal. 
Paul says of the world leaders back then, world rulers, he says they're doomed to pass away. As we think about wisdom today presented by the world, by the intelligent, by the academics, we need to remember that their wisdom will pass away with them because they're all doomed to pass away. Well, the wisdom of this world is based on things that can be seen, it can be heard, can be touched. But the wisdom of God is different. It's not seen by the naked eye. It can't be heard with the ear. It isn't understood by the mind. Verse 9 says, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. Non-believers are limited to temporal human wisdom. They can't grasp eternal wisdom. They can't see it. They can't touch it. They can't hear it. So therefore, they can't comprehend it. In verses 10 and 11 and following, Paul turns to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, which enables him to understand the gospel. Otherwise, how can they who haven't seen God and can't understand His ways ever understand the wisdom of God. Verses 10 and 11, we read, These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For He knows a person's thoughts. I'm sorry. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in Him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Before Christ ascended, he promised to send his Holy Spirit that would teach the disciples in all things and bring to them remembrance of all that he had said. In this passage here, Paul is saying that man could never know God, but that God had chosen to make himself known through his word and through his spirit. And Paul uses an analogy here to communicate this truth. He says, among men, among mankind, no one can know a man or a woman's thoughts except for their spirit. Unless he chooses to share. Last night, the elders and our wives were together and, and we had some games, to, some questions just to ask each other uh, personal things about us. So we got to know each other better. And it's real, it's real funny. One of the questions was, who knows you best? What person knows you best? Well, we all happen to be married. And so immediately everybody pointed to their spouse and said, my wife or my husband does. But the truth is, is the one who knows us best still doesn't know us. They don't understand the deep things sometimes that go on within our lives. Verse 12 and 13 we read, We did not receive the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God, in order that we might know the things graciously given to us by God. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, 
but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths for those who are spiritual. And we here, I believe, is Paul and the apostles. Paul's flow seems, his flow of thought seems to go like this. God gave his Holy Spirit to the apostles to reveal his truth as God's inspired and authoritative spoken. We see in that verse three verbs that Paul did for the apostles, or rather that the Spirit did for Paul and the apostles. First is, he says that the Spirit helped them to know and to receive the Word of God, and then to impart, to impart proclaim the Word, and lastly to interpret or to explain it. The Spirit who searches the depths of God in a special way to the apostles. It's through these inspired men that the apostles wrote the divine words that became the New Testament. Who then has access to spiritual truth? Verses 14 through 16 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. For God has disclosed himself to men, not just the apostles, but all who put their faith in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the Old Testament? God revealed himself through his word, through the Old Testament prophets. In New Testament times, this revelation came through the apostles. The spiritual person, the Christian, is able to receive the word of God and to understand it and to evaluate it. To receive the word. I mentioned my twin brother a while ago. Roger is not able to receive the word because the spirit has help us to receive it. Your brothers or your sisters or your friends or family who are not believers except for the Spirit of God enabling them, they can't receive the Word. They can't understand it. They can't value it. As I think about those that I love who are non-believers, I'm sure as you think about those that you know, We have to wonder why some are drawn to the Word and others repulsed by it. The difference, I believe, is summed up in the presence or absence of the Holy Spirit. In verses 14 through 16, Paul writes of the work of the Spirit, enabling believers to understand Scriptures and to know the have the mind of Christ. Paul divides the group into people into two groups, those who trust in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross for salvation and those who do not. And I can add to that by saying the unbelievers who do not have the Spirit of God don't understand the wisdom of God. And then the believers who do possess the Spirit of God are able to understand. Paul here says the unsaved group is the natural man. 
the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit because the Spirit of God does not dwell in him. That explains, if you think about it, why the wisdom of God seems so foolish to unbelievers. Just yesterday I was listening to some news and hearing people talk. I, I saw a, a brief clip. I don't watch... Um, what's the show with the five women? The, the View, yes. And they were talking. I, I just happened to see it on the Internet, you know, and, and this one lady who's a Christian began talking about her faith in Jesus Christ and, and the kids, her kids, how she wanted them. It was in response to the, the shooting in Oregon. And she was describing how it was so important that her kids understand the gospel, to understand that God loves them and that they're, in the midst of whatever happens, that they can have peace and rest knowing that they're safe in God's arms. And as, I, and as the camera scanned the five, you should have seen the total disgust that these women had for the gospel. But you see, we see that it kind of offends us, doesn't it? But see, that's natural. That's natural that they will do that because they don't have the Spirit of God. They can't grasp the truth of God's Word without the Spirit of God. Christian is the one who's called spiritual here by Paul. And too oftentimes we think of the spiritual person as being the more mature. But here Paul is referencing people with the Spirit of God living within them. So as believers in general, they're able to evaluate and understand how the mind of Christ. Paul closes this passage in verse 16 with the words of Isaiah 40:13. It says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Think about it here. You see not only the ignorance, and not saying it's in a bad way, of the non-believer as far as God's Word, but also the arrogance that they think that they could instruct God. And how many times have we heard people say, Well, if there's a God... He should do this. Right? Over and over we hear that. Who can have the mind of Christ except those who are drawn to the Lord by the Spirit of God? Always remember it's the Spirit of God working in our lives. It's God who initiates. It's God who draws. It's God who saves. It's God who sanctifies. Nothing that we do except trust. We respond to him. Christians should not be surprised by the reaction of the non-believer to the preaching of the gospel. I grew up in a in a non-Christian home, nominal Christian maybe. My mom was raised in a Christian home, and she she had Christian values. My dad was not raised in anything close to a Christian home. But I, for some reason, always wanted to go to church and oftentimes would catch a ride on the back of a pickup 
to the church by myself. Sometimes some of my brothers or sisters might go with me. And I went until around the 11th grade, and then I stopped because of different things going on. But I remember trying to understand God's Word. I remember going to vacation Bible school and hearing God's Word. And I remember as a little kid, probably 12 years old, I bought my own Bible. And I would sit down at night and I would start trying to read it. But the Bible was so boring. I couldn't understand it. It was like... I remember thinking, I paid $12 for this little Bible. What a waste! What a waste! You see, it was totally of no value to me. I, I did not understand it. I remember later on trying again and just nothing. But then at age 25, God opened my heart and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that word, which had been so boring before, which I could not understand, I literally would stay up to 2 o'clock in the morning, reading it, rejoicing in what God had done for me. I could not believe all that I saw. I remember reading through the Gospel of John several different times, different times, and, and each time the word would just pop out at me. I got excited. You see, the difference was before I didn't have the Spirit of God. once I put my faith in Christ, the word which had been so boring, so dull, so unimaginable, came alive. And it went to the core of my very being. God changed my life. Because the Spirit in me made His love His word. Dad was this hardworking man, and his mindset was always, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And he probably never read, you know, a book in the Bible, but his whole thing was, God helps those who help themselves, Ralph. And, and, and all these other false things. I remember just as I was talking to my pastor, and these, all these lies I believed all my life, God's Word just tore them down. I remember Pastor Young saying to me, Ralph, God helps those who can't help themselves. He says, find it anywhere in the Bible. So I thought it was. I thought it was God helps those who help themselves. We see, we come to a God who's all-powerful, and we come, as Paul did to the Corinthians, weak, trembling. It's through His Spirit, through His power that we live. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so they can't understand the gospel. The Bible reveals to us a God that we would never have imagined. A God who we wouldn't have wanted. A God who we would not have received. Apart from the Spirit of God. The Word of God, we're able to come to know Him. I think about Paul, a devout 
Jew. A man who went through all the best of training for Pharisees. Again, he loved to persecute Christians. He was dead wrong. He was dead wrong. When God revealed himself to Paul, as remember always, God initiates. Suddenly, everything in Paul's life changed. Everything was reversed. And Paul says in Philippians that the things that he once prized, thinking they won favor for him with God, he kind of just done. See, when the Spirit of God enters into our lives, and when the truth of God's Word impacts our hearts, everything turns around. Well, after what Paul was a new man in Christ, now he had come to know God through his word and through his spirit. And that's what Paul wants for us. We can't know God apart from Christ, and we can't know Christ apart from his word and his spirit. Hell will be filled with many who serve a God of their own making. But these aren't God. They are idols. We can't know God through our wisdom. We can't touch or hear Him, especially as non-believers. We hear Him as believers. We study God's Word. But He revealed Himself through His Word. And by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can come to know God personally. He's the one who has provided for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So today, if you think about this passage, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. We can't earn our salvation. It's when we yield our lives to God, repent of our sins, ask Him to save us and God's us first. For those of us who are believers, how does the word the cross impact your life? Paul made the point to talk about nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the cross. All Paul wanted was to proclaim Christ so that the power of the cross would save sinners. So what do you do? Paul died on the cross every day. He died to intellectual show. He died to impressive eloquence. He died to the secular demands of suave, self-assured, powerful, attractive performances. Jesus stated in Luke 9.23, says, If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. See, when Christ died on the cross for sinners, he not only took my place and your place, if we were believers, doing what we could never do, save ourselves, have our sins forgiven, but he also showed me what I need to do, what you need to do, namely that's to take up our cross. Take up our cross and to join him on the road of death to self. It's easy for us, isn't it, to treat the 
causes some historical event in the past. There's the very power of God to change our lives if we live with the centrality of Christ and the cross. How can you make the cross a focus in your life? How can you, every day when you wake up, how can you make the cross of Jesus Christ central in your life? And second point, am I and are you prone to judge unbelievers? We must remember the absolute necessity of the Spirit of God to work in the lives of non-believers. So when we see non-believers doing what non-believers do, we must remember we're saved, we're saved by grace. We're saved by a God who has drawn us to himself. So how can you, how can I today release non-believers from my Christian convictions? Because they're unable to live in any way except as non-believers. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for your spirit who lives within us. Father, thank you for the words of Paul. And Lord, just his focus continually on the cross and our need for the cross. Father, help us to die to ourselves daily so that you might live through us. And Father, as we interact with non-believers all around us every day, whether it's at school or at work or in our home, our families, Father, as we see the non-believer acting just like a non-believer, Father, may we not be repulsed at times. Father, may our hearts be so broken for them that we pray for their salvation. We thank you, Father, that because Christ lives within us, because the Spirit of God lives within us, Father, that we have the mind of Christ. Father, may we yield our lives to you in such a way that we allow you to speak to us and to lead us this time.